All right, amen. Guys, I invite you to take your Bibles. Let's turn together for our scripture reading for our sermon today. We are going to look together at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And today we're starting a new sermon series. So you may have noticed, if you've been coming here for you know, any, number, any number of weeks, any amount of time, you may have noticed that we recite together a creed every Sunday. Normally, that's the Apostles' Creed. And then on Communion Sundays, we typically do the Nicene Creed. Well, I want us to do a series that digs into that creed we say we believe every week. We're going to look together at the Apostles' Creed. And what I want us to look at is just break it down line by line and see what does that line mean? Where does that come from in Scripture? It's called the Apostles' Creed. So where did the apostles ever say that? That's a decent question to ask. And then, what does it mean for us, and how do, we, how do we live it? But I want us to begin today by thinking about what it means to say we believe it. So today we're going to start with that first line of the creed, I believe. And then we'll go into the things we say we believe over the next few weeks together. But let's begin. Let's read our passage for this week, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is God's holy word for us, his people, today. And the word of God says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's holy word for us. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, this is your word, and there's nowhere else we'd rather turn, for you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the one who has a word so powerful it brings universes into being, and it brings regenerate children of God into being, and it brings wholeness and healing into being. Speak, O Lord, and we cannot stay the same. So bless the reading of this word, and bless now, we pray, the preaching of this word, and do what you have in store for us, what you alone can do. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want us to start a series on the Apostles' Creed by thinking about that opening line, I believe. Let's talk about faith today. Let's begin with a parable. Jesus did parables. Let's see how I do. Here's your parable. We got a group of three. This is not a joke. (laughs) A normal person, a scientist, and a philosopher. Walking to a bar. No. A normal person, a scientist, and a philosopher are walking through a park. 
and they are discussing with each other whether or not black swans exist. And they all agree, no, there are no black swans. They don't exist. The normal per- Then all of a sudden, they're walking along up in front of them and just out of a bush, hops, wouldn't you know it, a black swan. And it just trots in front of them and then disappears off this way. And they all just stand there. They're like, what are the chances? What are the odds of that happening? And the normal person says, well, I guess there are black swans. The scientist says, no, there's at least one black swan. And the philosopher says, ah, but only on one side. (laughs) Right? You haven't seen the other side of that swan, so how do you know it's black on both sides? That's a philosopher for you. I majored in philosophy, so I really like that joke. But I'll tell you, being being a philosophy major didn't do me any favors. When I graduated from Liberty University with a philosophy degree... I was qualified to do nothing. (laughs) Nothing. One of my favorite coffee mugs is actually made by a company called the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. (laughs) If you flip it over, it says Unemployed Philosophers Guild. For best results, use other side. (laughs) So you have to flip it over. (laughs) Philosophy, man. So that's a philosopher for you. And that kind of sums up how we think about philosophers. They're, like the normal person's like, oh, there's a black swan, so there are black swans, plural. And the scientist says, no, you've only observed one black swan. You cannot therefore infer there are others. Fair enough. The philosopher says, yeah, but you haven't seen both sides of the swan, so how do you know it's black on both sides? And that's kind of how we think about philosophers. They're the ones who are just, they're so picky and precise, right? But a philosopher is doing something different than the scientist and something different than the normal person. A normal average person like you and me, they see the world in a general way, in a very general way. And that is perfectly sufficient for normal human life. That's, you know, and the way they see the world's true enough. The scientist, though, is observing things on a different level. The scientist is not looking at the world in a general way. The scientist is is looking at the world through the telescope and through the microscope. The scientist is looking at a different order of magnitude. The scientist looks at the things we see around us and doesn't see them as we see them. He is seeing them at a different level of reality, a different resolution, so that it comes into focus in a different way. And then the philosopher is the one who goes even beyond the telescope and beyond the microscope. The philosopher, at his best, is the one who wants to see reality at its truest and deepest essence. And to do that, you have to make really specific, to us, crazy distinctions, like it's only black on one side. If you want to peer down into the depths of reality, you've got to be able to make very precise distinctions and give very precise definitions, because what you want to find is what the world is really and ultimately like. All three of these people in this group are looking at reality at different levels of analysis and on different scales of resolution. Now there's another parallel, another group of three, a parallel group of three. This time, it's a normal Christian, a biblical scholar, and a theologian. Except they're not looking at the world in general. They're reading their Bible. 
They're reading their Bible. The normal Christian reads the Bible in a general way, usually in a devotional way. You open up your Bible for your Bible reading, and you're reading paragraph, a chapter, a couple of chapters, whatever reading plan or whatever you're doing. And you just want to know what's the basic information on the page in front of me. And you're usually asking a couple of devotional questions. What does this tell me about God and what does this tell me about how I should live? What does God want me to believe from this passage or chapter and how does God want me to live? My belief and my behavior, how does this inform that? And that's good enough for normal, everyday Christian living. That is perfectly sufficient for that. The biblical scholar, though, is not, is not satisfied with that. He's doing the equivalent of looking at the text with his microscope and his telescope. The biblical scholar wants to read it in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. The biblical scholar wants to say, well, what's the background of this author and the background of the original audience and the relationship they had with each other and what time, meaning like what period in history is it written in, what was going on historically, politically, culturally, philosophically, religiously, and he wants to dig into all of this deep texture that's underneath and around the text historically and do good critical, historical, grammatical exegesis and write commentaries. He's not reading the Bible on the same level of analysis, at the same level of resolution that the normal Christian is. And then the theologian is like the philosopher. And here's the theologian who's taking the normal devotional reading of Scripture and taking what the biblical scholar finds, and he's putting it into a theological framework, and he's organizing and integrating it and working out inconsistency so he can have a system of theology, a systematic theology, a full, fully formed, full-orbed doctrine of everything that the Bible talks about, a systematic theology. They're looking at the Bible, the same Bible, but they're looking at it at different levels of analysis, different scales of resolution. The task of that philosopher, though, is very similar to the task of the theologian in our parable. The philosopher, he is aiming to build a worldview, and then he wants to then give it back to the normal person as an understandable, viable, livable philosophy of life what the world is really like, what your place in the world really is, and how you should live in light of that reality. That's ideally what the philosopher, he shouldn't stop it, it's black on one side. He should then go on to give back to the normal person, here's what you do with this, here's how you should understand your reality and how you should live. And the theologian has a similar task. The theologian's job is to construct a system of theology from the scriptures and then give it back to the church. Theology for the sake of the church. Give it back to the church. Give it back to the normal Christian in the pew in a summary form that is viable and livable for everyday life in this world as a Christian. That's theology at its best. It's in service of the church. It's not just write the big textbook, you know, a 1,000, 1,500 pages of in-depth theology and all the verses explained and all the questions answered and just leave it like that on the bookshelf. That's theology for your bookshelf. That's not theology for your life. He should give it back to the church, back to you in the pew, back to me in the pulpit to tell us how do we preach this? How do we live this? How do we obey this? How do we follow it? And to do that, the theologians need to summarize and simplify and give you a nice, 
compact, concise statement of the faith, of theology. And that is called a creed. That's what the Apostles' Creed is. It is a summary form of the faith. It boils down the core or essence. It bottles the essence of the Apostles' teachings for us. So we can try to understand it, preach it, live it, evangelize with it, do missions, plant churches, love each other, be Christians. That's what a creed is supposed to do. Take the 1,500, you know, take the 1,500 pages of Bible and then the extra 1,500 pages of theology and boil it down for us in a simple form. And the Apostles' Creed is the oldest and best way that the church has found to do that. It's the, it represents the core of the Christian faith. And each line in that creed, it's, there's not a lot of detail. We recited it in about 30 seconds. It's not a lot of detail because it's not supposed to give you the details. Each line is supposed to be a doorway into the details, into the 1,500 pages of theology about that line. So it's just a little place for you to find an entryway into God, Jesus, salvation, the Holy Spirit, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection. That is a doorway into a whole realm of theological discussion. Creeds are very important. That word creed actually comes into English from the Latin word credo, which is the first word of the Apostles' Creed. Credo means I believe. And so this is our creed. Creeds are very important. They help summarize what we believe. They help give us what we need to believe. They help give us what we need to explain to an unbeliever, to share with each other. Creeds are, vi- are, are vital to us because they help us understand the, bo- the boundaries around the faith. Right? We have a lot of freedom inside the fence, but we don't go outside the fence. And a creed helps us put a fence around the faith. <clears throat> but now, what happens... What happens when our two groups of three from our parable meet each other and the first group are unbelievers? Now, what do we do? What happens when the normal person who's not a Christian meets the normal person who is? And the the non-Christian says, yeah, that's some ancient fairy tales you got there, pal. What happens when the atheist scientist meets the believing biblical scholar and starts saying, well, your book says this, but our science says this? And what happens when the agnostic philosopher meets our systematic theologian and starts trying to show the intellectual holes in that system? What happens when those two groups meet? We don't have to wonder because you're in one of those groups and people you know are in the other group. All of you have a family member or a friend or a coworker or a fellow citizen or a neighbor who's in one of those categories, who's not a believer and who says that, you know, it's a nice ancient book with some ancient stories in it and some maybe some ancient wisdom for this or that, but... Your faith, your creed is not viable today. It's not viable. It's not livable. 
and it's not vital, meaning it's not necessary anymore. All of us are facing, not just individuals, but a civilization in the West, a culture, a world that has been moving more and more that way for over 300 years. We've been facing the cultural movement called the Enlightenment and modernity and modernism. And it is this normal person, normal unbelieving skeptic, atheist science, agnostic philosophers who have been challenging the viability and livability of Christian faith and the importance of Christian faith for several centuries now. And we are becoming less and less of a society and a world of faith. Faith in our world is not doing well. Oh, there's lots of believers around us who believe all sorts of things about all kinds of stuff. But faith in general is not doing well. And we need to face this question. And we need to face this question. Is faith viable in our world today? Is it still viable? Is it still livable? Is it still vital? And if we don't face those questions, you're going to meet people and already have who are asking those questions and who aren't only asking them, but who have answers that they think are right, who answer it in the negative. No, Christian faith is no longer viable today. I mean, I remember hearing about a biblical scholar who was being convinced by these, by these arguments. And he said, he said that he, was, he met people who said, this was their argument. This was in like the 1920s or something. They had just invented the electric razor. And he said, in a world where I can shave with an electric light razor under an electric light bulb is, a, is a, a world where my faith just doesn't make sense anymore. Now, that's the technology of like the 1920s. Look at where we are today with our technology, our engineering, our science, our medicine, all the stuff that's stacked against Christian faith. Is it viable anymore? Today, I want us to think about faith. I want us to, to face this question about faith, because faith has many competitors. We say every Sunday, I believe, but so many say that's wrong, and they don't believe. And we need to be ready to have some answers. We need to be ready to confront those who have these answers, and in a loving, teachable way, be able to present our answers. Faith has many competitors today, many competitors, many competitors that challenge the viability of faith. But in each case, in each case, I'm convinced that faith rises to the challenge. What is faith? Just at a basic definition level, faith is a belief that something is true, right, or valuable. And by valuable, I mean meaningful, important, significant. Valuable in the sense that it matters, that something matters. Faith is a belief that something, anything, is true or right or that it matters, that it's meaningful in some way, that it's significant. And a belief is something that you are convinced of or something that you assume is correct. Something you're convinced is correct or that you just assume is correct. Those are your beliefs. And faith is sort of this conscious belief that something is true, that something is right, or that something is important. That's faith. 
But there are lots of competitors to faith today, to Christian faith specifically. And let's talk about some of these. Faith is often opposed to reason. Faith versus reason. Human reasoning, human thinking, the human mind. Faith versus reason. We'll often hear that, you know, faith is this irrational leap into the dark. The leap of faith. It's just irrational. There's no logic behind faith. We have logic and you have faith. But that's not true. Faith is reasonable. You can give reasons for your faith. You can appeal to arguments. You can show the coherence of your beliefs. Faith is something that is reasonable. It's not opposed to reason. It's supported by reason. It's helped by reason. You can give arguments for why your belief is not irrational and why it's not false. You can defend your faith with reasons and appeals to logic. Faith is not opposed to reason. Faith is, at least faith can be, reasonable. Sometimes faith is opposed to evidence. Faith versus evidence. Again, it's just a leap in the dark. Faith is belief without evidence, we hear sometimes. Just believing something without any, any reason, objective reason to think it's true. Faith versus evidence. But that, of course, isn't true either. Faith absolutely can appeal to evidences, and it does. We can appeal to a wide variety of historical reasons for the resurrection or to scientific reasons for creation. We can use evidence in this world to support our faith, to show that it's not irrational, that it's not unreasonable, and that it's not unfounded, that it can be well-founded by pointing to reason, using human reason, and pointing to evidence. It's, so I'm telling you, faith's not a, the opposite of thinking, <laughs> reason. And faith's not the opposite of evidence. Another competitor is faith versus facts. Faith versus facts. Sometimes you'll hear this, we have solid fact, and you just have this sort of wish fulfillment or fantasy or, you know, whatever. We have facts, you have faith. And they're opposed to each other, we're told. But that also is just a bit too shallow. Because here, fact is being taken as something that is proven. It's unquestionably proven to be true. You can't even call it into question unless you're an insane person. Like a fact is being taken that way. And that's knowledge. We have real knowledge and you have faith. But you know, if that's true, then we, our knowledge is incredibly limited. If, knowledge, if the only thing that counts as knowledge is what you can prove without question is true, you don't know much. <laughs> and neither do I. Knowledge is so much broader than just what is proven fact. And what's often missed, what's often missed is that there aren't just physical facts of nature. There are spiritual facts of life. There are things that cannot be examined in a scientific way that are real. Relationships are real. Thoughts are real. Laws of logic are real. Science has to assume that the laws of logic are true before it can even do the first experiment. So that can't be proven scientifically, but they're taken for granted. There are facts of life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self and on and on it goes. Love of music and delight in nature. Those are things that happen in our souls, in our lives that are real. And to say, well, those don't count... 
as part of my inventory of facts about the world, that's not itself a fact. You're not playing fair. You're not taking everything into account. Faith versus facts, too shallow. Faith can appeal to facts, but it is true that faith does go beyond what can be proven, like most knowledge. Most knowledge goes beyond what can be proven. I heard one person give this definition of faith. Faith is well-founded trust beyond what we can know for sure that something is true. Faith is well-founded trust beyond what we can know for sure that something is true. Meaning it does step beyond what is proven. It does include an element of trust. That you have, you have facts and reasons and evidence and they get you so far, but then you have to reach a conclusion and you step forward in a well-founded way and draw a conclusion about something you haven't proven that you have good reason to think is true. That counts as knowledge as well. Faith is not opposed to facts. Faith welcomes all the facts you can throw at it and it makes room for those facts and it takes a step beyond them and says, we have a well-founded trust beyond what we can prove, beyond what we can know for sure, based on the normal methods of proof that something is true. Faith can make that appeal. Let me just mention one more competitor to faith, and that is the big one, science. Faith versus science. Often you hear this, we have science, logic, reason, hard facts, science, and you've got wish fulfillment, fairy tales, old books, nonsense. (laughs) Science versus faith. Like there's a big challenge between them. And you know, science, if you look at science, if you watch the, if you watch somebody doing an experiment on something, and then you watch a Christian reading his Bible in church, those don't look like the same thing. Science versus faith. Because in the application, they do look different. But underneath science and underneath faith, they actually are remarkably the same. Faith or religion at its best and science at its best, at its core, are actually the same venture, the same thing. What is religion ultimately, which is what faith comes from? Religion is a personal experience that happens in our hearts that we then put rituals around so we can practice it outwardly. But religion happens inside, just like faith. Religion is the venture of the human spirit in the realm of nature, questing for communion with the ultimate reality that we think is divine. That's what science is as well, at its best and at its core. The venture of the human knower, the human spirit in the realm of nature, questing for communion with ultimate reality. I've been reading a biography of Isaac Newton, arguably the goat of science, if you will, the greatest of all time. The, I mean, with Isaac Newton changed everything. You could also put Einstein in that conversation. But it's Newton and Einstein. There are a lot of others, but they're right there together. And Isaac Newton, you know where his science began? It began as a child, and it began with wonder. I was reading about how he was sitting in England as a child, and he's watching the dance and the play of light on a wall. And it fascinated him to see how light moves the way it does. 
And decades later, he publishes the defining treatise on what light is. No one knew what light was until him. (laughs) It's called Optics. His book's called Optics. And he's like, I now know what light is and how it moves. Now, we know more about light than he did because we've gone further. You've got Einstein to thank for that and other great scientists, physicists. But you know where his science started? With wonder. Look at light. What is it? Why does it move like that? He was fascinated by light and lots of other things like apples falling on his head and stuff like that. How does that happen? What's going on here? What does reality have to be like? And so what did he do? He went on a quest to know. I want to know what is really going on at the core of what light is, at the core of what reality is like. It was a venture of the human spirit, the curious, wondering, thrilled human spirit that just wants to see and touch and understand and know what is this thing called the world at its core and its essence. What, what are we dealing with here? That's where science starts. Every branch of science at its best starts with wonder at unanswered questions about reality as we see it. What's going on under the hood? of the world. And that's where religion starts as well. They are two sides of the same coin. One is science is investigating those physical and material questions about ultimate reality. And on the other side is religion searching for the spiritual nature of the world and of reality. One takes those physical facts, the material facts, and does science. Religion takes the spiritual facts and does Religion and does faith and does theology, but they come out of the same place in the human spirit. Faith and science are just two sides of the same quest. They're not ultimately opposed to one another unless you think that there are only spiritual facts and the physical facts don't count, or there are only physical realities and the spiritual realities don't count. It's when we start thinking what we like is the only thing that counts that we see opposition happens. But if we let them both come together, which is what the philosopher tries to do and the theologian tries to do, we can put them together and we can see a truer picture, a truer worldview. What's my point in going through these? Is that when we're told faith is the opposite of reason, faith means checking your brain at the door. Don't believe that. To believe, you've got to stop thinking and just listen. No, you don't. Faith is just this thing that doesn't care about evidence. There's no reason to think it's true. That's not true either. There are reasons to believe. Faith is just opposed to facts. No, faith takes into account more facts. Faith is against science. No, certain conclusions of science, sure. Certain conclusions of faith, yep. But faith and science ultimately are two sides of the same quest. They go together. They are compatible. So what is faith? Let's talk about the nature of faith. We said earlier that faith is being convinced that something's true. Being convinced that something is true. And faith is convinced on the basis of revelation, on the basis of authority, and on the basis of reliable testimony. This is where faith comes from. It's a step beyond what we can prove It includes learning from revelation and from authority and from a reliable testimony, just like everything else. (laughs) Sometimes people think science is based on experimentation and faith is based on revelation. Actually, they're both based on revelation. 
<laughs> you ever think about that? Science is based on divine revelation because it wants to, it starts asking questions. It begins by trying to pull nature open and get it to reveal its secrets. Tell me what you are. Show me what you're like. It's Isaac Newton writing every equation he can think of and studying the way light moves, trying to figure out what it is. And what's the scientist doing? He's waiting for revelation to happen. He wants nature to reveal itself, disclose itself. Show me what this electron is and what it does. Show me why waves in the ocean move like this and that. Show me why light does this. And all through all the different branches and fields of science... It's born out of wonder, and it gets its information from revelation, where the world is showing itself, revealing itself, opening up its secrets. And that's where science gets its data from, revelation. Well, that's where we get our information from, too, revelation, where we believe God is speaking through nature to us, to our faith, where God is speaking to us through the experiences that human beings have with him and the written record of those experiences. We believe we can get revelation into the spiritual realm from those who have had a spiritual encounter with the living God. We don't think God spoke only. We believe God speaks, present tense, and he speaks to us in all sorts of ways, and he can speak to us reliably through the people that his son handpicked to tell us what God is really like. It begins with revelation, and so does everything else that we think we know. We don't know anything until it's revealed to us. We appeal to authority, the authority of God's word. We should not be looked down on for that because we live in a world with slogans like, Trust the experts. <laughs> Everybody believes in appealing to authority, those who know better, those who are the experts. Everybody believes that. We believe that too. You appeal to those who have a well-founded authority, to credible authority like God's Word. And we believe based on testimony from reliable witnesses. That's how you know 99% of what you know. You think you know what George Washington said or did? You weren't there. Nobody alive was there. You know how you know somebody told you? How do you know that person knows? <laughs> you read it in a book. Well, who knows? Okay, so some guy wrote that book. How do you know he's right? Right. Well, he's a historian, and, and it's recorded somewhere. Yeah, but how do you know any of that's reliable? You don't. You take it based on its credibility, and that's knowledge. <laughs> it is knowledge. Well, that's what we're doing. We're looking at a book that we think gives us reliable testimony, gives us reliable insight that has divine authority, that gives us divine revelation. That's where faith comes from. You are convinced of your faith based on revelation, based on the authority of the Lord Jesus and His apostles, and based on the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the Christians who have come before us. That's why you have a creed that was written 1,800 years ago. And when you have faith, it comes from these sources, revelation, authority, and testimony, just like everybody else's knowledge in any other field. And what does faith consist of? Here's the, here's the important part that I want you to get this, uh, this morning. Biblical faith, what does it consist of? This is going to push us finally into our passage. Biblical faith consists of 
confidence, conviction, and commitment. When we say, I believe, we are expressing what we're confident of. We're expressing our convictions and we're telling everyone else what our commitments are. When we say, I believe, that's what we mean. Confidence. Confidence, that's trust and hope. Confidence is trust and it's hope. If you look in our text, what does the author do? He starts with a premise. Since then we have a great high priest. Because of who Jesus is. In verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's he doing? He's appealing to reasons. He's saying, since this is true, have faith. Since this is who Jesus is, you can trust him. It's trust and it's hope. Trust for now and hope for the future. It's believing in those promises that God has for us. And it's believing, trusting, having confidence in who he is and what he said and what he promises to do. Confidence is trust and it's hope. Trust and hope. Not a fingers crossed, ooh, I hope it works out, but a settled and steady confidence where you hope in God and you trust in Jesus. That's where faith starts, with confidence. And it involves conviction. It involves passion. It involves devotion. It's something that matters to you. This is what he says in the passage. He says to hold fast. Let us hold fast our confession or our creed. Let us hold fast what we say we believe. When we say, I believe, hold it firmly with some conviction. Hold it with passion and devotion. You are dedicated to this faith. It is your faith and it matters to you. It informs how you think. It informs how you feel. It informs how you live. It matters in the way that you live daily, ordinary life. It matters, not just in the big stuff like when you go vote or you know, vote your convictions, we say. Live your convictions the other four years, <laughs> not just on election day. Live those convictions because they matter to you. They're real. They inform everything from how you make a grocery list to spend your money to the way you spend time with your kids or grandkids to the way that you just act in traffic or the way you treat the server who's not doing a great job. It matters to you. Your faith informs all this stuff. Hold it fast. Be Christian everywhere and every day and in every circumstance. Out of that confidence that you have in who God is, who Jesus is, what His Word says, and what He promises for you in the future. That's where it starts. Confidence, conviction, and then finally commitment. That's your faithfulness. That's faith in action. Faithfulness, loyalty, devotion, actually living it out. That's what holding fast our confession looks like. It looks like, verse 16, let us with confidence, that's faith, draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. Living this stuff out. Living this stuff out. Biblical faith, real faith consists of confidence and conviction and commitment.
It's not just something we hold in our heads. It's something that matters in our hearts, and it's something that we live by in life. And all of our friends and family members and coworkers and other people who aren't believers, they have a different kind of faith. They have things that matter to them that they live by. They have convictions they live by. They have commitments. They have confidence in other things. And our message is those things you have confidence in aren't rock solid. Listen to the gospel. It's time to repent, which means to stop having confidence in the wrong things. Time to repent, which means have a different conviction. Time to repent, which means commit your life in a different way. That's the Christian message. Ultimately, faith is an adventure. Like the venture of the human spirit in the realm of nature. Faith is a venturesome thing, an adventurous, curious, vibrant, vital thing that lives, pulses, has a heartbeat, gets you out of yourself and into the world, being a believing, obedient, faithful Christian. And that is vital. Is faith viable in a world like this? Is it vital? Is it livable? Yes, yes, and yes. It is very important. It is livable and vital in a world where we still have evil and tragedy, where we still have people opening fire at a parade for a Super Bowl party, and where people are, children are killed, and a woman, a woman loses her life, and children are injured, rather. Things like that happen in our world, and faith has a lot to say about what's happening there and how to fix it and how to respond to it and how you help people through it and how you answer their questions. When someone says, how could God let something like this happen? You have something you can say. You have something to tell them when evil and tragedy happen to others and when it happens to you. How do you live through it? Faith is, is viable and it is vital in a world where there's still deception and there's still confusion and lies around us, how do you cut through those to hear the voice of truth? Faith is vital in a time like ours. Faith is vital in a world that's still lost and still broken because you have something you can share that gives hope. You trust and have hope in Jesus and you can share that with someone else who needs to hear it. Is faith still livable in our world? You better believe it. It is an adventure to go on, to step out in faith and to live this life in a heroic and fearless way and do great things for the Lord. They might look ordinary to others, but they are great in the eyes of God. The Apostles' Creed gives us a viable, vital, livable faith for our day. So as we go forward in this series, let's think about how we can hold these things with confidence and conviction and commitment and be active, living, faithful Christians so that each Sunday we can, with some conviction and some gusto, say boldly and confess, I believe. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that can open up that word to us and apply it to our hearts. Thank you for giving us a faith that is strong. Thank you for giving us a faith that does not have to fear what unbelief has to say. Strengthen us in our faith. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our unbelief. And push us forward to hold the faith with confidence, to believe it with some conviction, and then to live it out with some faithful commitment. 
And let us go on that risky, daring venture with you where we live life in a world that's opposed to us as a convinced, faithful, vibrant Christian who's ready to share the hope and confidence we have in you and to be there to help others who are suffering when they have these same questions. Help us to be the light of the world that Jesus calls us to be and give us some conviction to hold these things to see where they come from in your word, to believe them boldly, and to serve you faithfully. We ask it in Jesus' name.